The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Brian D. Estelle. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that we can sing your praises. Indeed, uh, you are good, and your works are good, and your deeds are good. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would illumine the scriptures for us this morning, uh, prepare our hearts, uh, wipe away all distractions. We plead with you that you would grant us uh, that posture without which no one can understand truth, namely having reverence and humility before your word. We ask this for Jesus' namesake. Amen. So as we march through the wisdom text this morning, we turn to Proverbs chapter 2. So if you want to open your Bible and turn to Proverbs chapter 2, I'll be uh, reading from verses 1 to 11. Uh, We'll just cover the first half of this chapter uh, because of time constraints. Um, But this is God's word. Please give uh, careful attention to it. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of the saints. And then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. That's the reading of God's word. You may discern a lot about our culture uh, by looking at bumper stickers. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to observe the bumper stickers, which are little indexes of our culture on the back of cars. Uh, I saw one that said something like the following. You've probably seen it too. Mines are like parachutes. They only work when they are open, close quote. I thought to myself, that's so typical of our culture, isn't it? Mines are like parachutes. They only work when they are open. It reminded me of uh, reading a book entitled Dumbing Down, Essays on the Strip Mining of American Culture. And in that book, published by a mainline publisher, Norton and Company, 1996, uh, there's one article in there called The Postmodern Schoolhouse, where we read the following litany of items uh, that this author thinks characterizes uh, our postmodern age. He says, first, number one, there are many interpretations of reality, according to the mindset out there. Two, no single perspective on reality can claim exclusive truth. Uh, Three, every act of interpretation or judgment reflects the symbols and norms of one or more social groups. Number four, the self, our minds, are socially constructed. Five, every judgment or expression reflects the interests not only of individuals, but more crucially, of the social groups or interpretive communities of which we are a part. 
Six, this is the case, so the thought goes, especially with high culture, since it allegedly represents the ideas and the symbols that have allowed the dominant race, class, gender to maintain hegemony, that is power or control over others. Seven, works reflecting the interests of this dominant class, therefore, must be unmasked together with their hegemonic biases. Patriarchy, racism, imperialism must be revealed and exposed. Eight, at the same time, work by and for the oppressed must be retrieved and fully appreciated. And nine, finally, ideals of truth, objectivity, reason, argument, evidence, impartiality, etc. cetera, uh, these are elements of a so-called regime of truth, and they are themselves the instruments of oppression according to this worldview. So that's very much the mindset of much of our unbelieving culture out in the world, the primary components according to this author of a postmodern age. This is the ruling ideology and the set of assumptions uh, about knowledge in the world. And the bottom line uh, for the modernized world is that there is no objective truth. How striking then when we turn to God's word that the bottom line in the scriptures is exactly the opposite. Uh, whereas the worldview so often out in the culture in which we live is that thinking and behaving must be restructured in order to accommodate the absence of God uh, or perhaps the marginalization or irrelevance of God, uh, the worldview taught in the Bible is just the opposite. Uh, for the Christian, according to Proverbs, knowledge must begin and end with a proper uh, knowledge of God himself. And Proverbs teaches us that belief and practice, that is behavior, are inextricably bound up together, the former being the foundation of the latter. And moreover, the latter is the very outworking evidence of uh, the former, namely right belief. Now this morning, I'm not gonna comment on wisdom and um, the unbelievers ac um, access to knowledge and common grace or natural law. That, uh, is something you can get out of Psalms and Wisdom class, but uh, this morning we have no time to go there. But I want to have us look this morning at three points. First of all, wisdom's conditions as taught in this passage. And then secondly, wisdom's consequences as taught in this passage. And finally, wisdom's Christ. So first of all, wisdom's conditions, uh, looking at verses 1 through 4, if you look with me there, let me say a few words first about the structure of chapter two. Chapter two of Proverbs is an astonishing literary composition. It's an exquisite masterpiece. It's essentially one long sentence with lots of semicolons. There's 22 lines uh, in the chapter, just as there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, now this is not strictly speaking a Hebrew acrostic, which are common in the Psalms and in some of the wisdom literature. Uh, rather, the pattern and organization is somewhat different. The pattern is you have four lines, followed by four lines, followed by three lines in the first half of uh, the chapter, and then you have repeated four lines, followed by four lines as a pericope, followed by three lines. And the first three sections, which take you up through verse 11, uh, are introduced with a signal of the first letter of the alphabet, namely Aleph. So right after my son, Bani, you have a word that begins uh, with an olive. And then verse five begins with an olive. And then verse nine uh, begins with an olive, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which takes you all the way through verse 11. 
And then in the second half, you have a very similar pattern of 443, and uh, the author goes to the middle of the alphabet and organizes that part of the chapter according to Lamed. Now, when you look at this, uh, you have these conditions set out, and I want to focus your attention on that. You can see it reading the English here with all the if sentences, and basically there's four conditions set out here in the very beginning of uh, chapter two. So notice the first condition. If you accept and store, or as the ESV translate, if you receive and treasure up. So here the sage is concerned that with respect to wisdom, you not just accept it, but you appropriate it, and, and you receive it, but you store them up so that you treasure it. And then you turn in verse two to the second condition. If you turn and apply, or as the ESV says, as you make your ear inclining your heart uh, to these things. Verse two further explains verse one uh, with a further condition, making your ear attentive, inclining your heart to understanding. So you can see once you've stored up and treasured the truth within your heart according to the sage, then the sage wants you to yield your heart and your obedience to the instruction. And we have here a rather amazing insight into God's desires for his children more universally or more generally, echoed, I think, from Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me, and that all my, they would obey all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. So God longs that his children would indeed uh, know and fulfill these conditions that they may know wisdom. See, God is addressing one of the biggest temptations that all of us uh, uh, face here, namely that we would exalt ourselves over God's word as opposed to putting ourselves under God's word and here it's an instruction. But then you turn to verse three and you can see a third condition, uh, that you call out and cry, that you raise your voice as the ESV says. So here we see the language of prayer. Here's something in the third uh, condition uh, expressed further that uh, tells you more about the school of wisdom. In fact, if you fast forward to verse six, you can see that wisdom is actually a gift from God, uh, but it's a tenuous gift, as I tell my Psalms and wisdom students, okay? If you think you're wise, then you've already lost it, according to uh, Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So we want you to be wiser when you graduate or by the end of the first semester and Psalms and Wisdom, but we don't want you to know it because as soon as you know it, you've lost it. Um, but notice, despite the fact that the scriptures teach that wisdom is a gift, it's also something that God commands us to exercise real energy and industry to try and obtain with all our heart and mind. Uh, under this condition, uh, we are to pray for it. Then you look at the fourth condition, look and search, or ESV, seek and search. This condition really reinforces the previous one. In other words, you're not only to accept and store, verse one, you're not only to turn and apply your heart to it, uh, verse two, uh, you're not only to call out and cry for it, verse three, but you're to look for it, you're to search it for it, you're to really dig, you're to go after it as if there is something valuable here to obtain through sweat and hard work and labor. So those are wisdom's conditions. Now, if you look at the structure of the passage, notice the consequences uh, marked out by 
uh, particle, if you're looking at your Hebrew Bible, you'll be able to identify, or even at your English Bible, the then clauses, verses 5 to 11. So if these conditions are met, these are the consequences, wisdom's consequences. The first consequence is the obtainment of the objective revelation of God, verse 5. The first thing you will experience is communicated in verse 5, the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. You see, the fear of the Lord, according to Proverbs, is that sphere within which wisdom is possible and can be obtainable, and not just objective knowledge, but also ethical behavior. As Professor Horton was explicating the prologue of uh, Proverbs 1, that's essentially what it uh, teaches. It is a gift to God, but paradoxically, it's related to discipline and hard work. And the consequence of such fear of the Lord is the knowledge of God. Uh, there's no higher elevating gift than the knowledge of God. Just think of that. The knowledge of God is the greatest gift that one may have. And so this wisdom is marked off not just by its intellectual sign, but also by uh, the dynamic side to it, the ethical side, if you will. So verses 1 through 5 set before us these lofty uh, conditions and extravagant rewards. Uh, but notice again back to verse 6. It is a gift that God reveals wisdom, um, that it is something that he has and grants uh, to us as we uh, work in earnest for it. So wisdom is the gift to the possessor, but it's not to be had merely by your own efforts, interestingly enough. Although you may think that you fulfill these conditions that are expressed earlier on, which you do not, nevertheless, the scriptures here teach that wisdom is dispensed alone by God according to his good pleasure. So the scriptures, you see, tell us that God alone can give you uh, the desire, let alone the reward for the desire, to seek, to dig, to cry out and long for wisdom. Why? Because wisdom ultimately belongs to God and God alone. Job chapter 12, verse 13 says, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. So that's the first consequence uh, on the heels or in the wake of uh, um, this particular outlining of uh, four conditions. Note of the metaphors I just used, everyday speech. And um, now look at the second consequence, verse nine. Namely, that you will have ethical knowledge as well as the objective knowledge of God. Verse 9 says, then you will understand righteousness, justice, equity, and every good path. So notice, as a, interesting, as a Jew, Jewish scholar pointed out, rather than demanding these virtues, uh, here uh, Proverbs, and especially in light of the prologue, promises these virtues for one that studies the Proverbs and studies the wisdom literature. So we must not pass too quickly over these words. We could spend a lot of time on them, but nevertheless, what is this righteousness? Here's the foundation of right order. Uh, to do something zedek, to do something uh, righteous means to do it in the right way. Uh, justice, this is the right and just condition. Sometimes it's translated custom. Uh, more often, it means the right state of affairs. Um, equity uh, means straightness, levelness, uh, indicates the result of honest, fair speech or uh, judgment. 
So what do you have here uh, to review and recap? So far, you have four conditions, wisdom's conditions in verses one through four, and then you have two clear consequences in verses five and nine. However, if you were like me, when I look at the details of this passage or other sections of Proverbs, I rarely come anywhere close to approximating these conditions. And I surely don't experience, at least as much as I would uh, care to, the consequences of fulfilling these conditions, namely the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of God, and the ethical behavior that is entailed here. So where is wisdom to be found? And here we look at the canonical context for wisdom's Christ. How can wisdom uh, be found? Well, in the full context of this passage, which is the canonical context of the Bible, the wisdom of Christ is the only uh, way one can even begin to approximately meet these conditions and experience these consequences in any ultimate sense of the term. In other words, there's not one of us present this morning that accepts and stores, turns and applies, calls and cries, looks and searches as we ought. <clears throat> and if these are truly the conditions for obtaining wisdom's consequences, namely true objective knowledge of God, let alone ethical right behavior, um, understanding what is right and just and fair, then we need to ask the question, then to where do we turn? Well, we turn to wisdom's Christ. Jesus Christ was the perfect embodiment of these things spoken of here. And if we poor, sick, frail sinners uh, that we are, will only turn to him in repentance and faith, completely relying on him, his sacrificial atonement, and moreover, his probation-keeping righteousness and the righteousness that he will give us if we lean and depend upon him, then he too will give us wisdom. He will impart the desire to us to do what is right and wise, and he will in ever-increasing measure bless us with the consequences of wisdom described here by his grace. Let's, let's look at a few uh, passages briefly that teach that uh, Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of uh, wisdom. Matthew 11 and Matthew 12 are absolutely essential to see how the scriptures, canonical scriptures, demonstrate that the wisdom tradition is taken up by the apostles and applied to Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of it. Matthew 11 and 12 especially are very important passages in order to explicate this notion. So for example, in Matthew 11 verses 18 and 19, you'll remember this familiar passage uh, where it says, and I quote, John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. Uh, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collector and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions or her children. Uh, one uh, tradition has her deeds. So it's interesting here that the idea is that wise deeds or children vindicate those who are wise. In other words, the proof's in the pudding. Uh, the deeds of Christ refer to Christ's work and his mission. Those who reject Jesus' deeds, indirectly implied, reveal that they are not wise. If you look at the context here in chapter 11 of Matthew, at the very beginning it says, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who has come? Or should we expect someone else? In other words, it's by one's deeds that one can understand that a person, in this case, the Lord Jesus Christ, is uh, wise. 
And then, of course, if you turn to that profound pericope, uh, perhaps one of the most profound in all the New Testament, it's like stepping off a, uh, you know, at the beach, uh, shallow water, and suddenly hitting a deep, a deep uh, uh, concave section. Uh, Come to me and I will give you rest, verse 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden uh, is light. So these verses, uh, amazing as they are, reveal Christ's preexistence and unique relationship to the Father. Notice verse 25 to 27, these things are revealed to the simple to the simple, and it is the Son of God who reveals. These things are hidden from those who think themselves wise and learned. Verse 29 and 30 say that Christ's yoke is easy, as opposed to the yoke and the Pharisee fencing that was going on at the time, adding extrapolations to the law. Um, Therefore, we can see from these verses, Christ, Jesus, considered himself in his relationship to the Father uh, to be the true wisdom and revealer of true wisdom. Wisdom is found, according to the scriptures, in prizing Christ, who is wisdom, and in conjunction with the Father and the Holy Spirit, who gives the power and ability to desire to obey God and indeed obtain wisdom. We could go on, flip over to the next chapter, great chapter on typology. There we read in chapter 12, verse 6, something greater than Jonah is here, or rather something greater than the temple is here. And then you bump up to 1240 and you read something greater than Jonah is here. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 41, something greater than Solomon is here. So here it seems that the Lord in his own messianic consciousness, uh, in terms of the wisdom tradition that Solomon representing, is saying something greater than Solomon is here, even though he was the epitome of wisdom. Prophet, priest, and king. Uh, um, Jesus outstrips all uh, the type to reveal himself to be the true antitype. And of course, we could go on, but we turn uh, to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 through 3, 2, where you see this whole section is one of the most definitive statements about uh, New Testament wisdom as it applies uh, to Christ. And what is Paul's major uh, premise here? As one author has said, most pristinely, the proclamation of the gospel of Christ is the ultimate wisdom of God. A key verse often quoted, 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, or verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is, writ- as it is written, and he quotes Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's true wisdom. Did you notice the three qualities that come from Um, possessing Christ as your true wisdom. According to uh, this uh, passage, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. So our righteousness and our sanctification even and our redemption. Or to turn to Professor Baugh's favorite book, maybe next to Hebrews, Ephesians, 
chapter 1, verse 17, that great prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. This passage shows us that New Testament wisdom is, as one author has said, an endowment of the Spirit, fulfilling the Old Testament wisdom of endowment. Brothers and sisters, the wisdom of Christ is so different from the wisdom of this world. It is a gift. In a time when the world round about you says that you cannot know objective truth, that all truth is ultimately subject to power plays and ploys by others. God says, no, you may know the truth. Uh, if you seek uh, for her, if you cry out for her, you may actually learn of the one true God who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Because if you turn to Christ and you beg of him and, and are completely dependent upon him, uh, he will grant you his righteousness, his forgiveness. He will grant you his spirit in order that you may approximate in an approximate way fulfill these conditions and obtain to the objective knowledge of God and right ethical behavior. Seeking him, may you know him, and knowing him, may you live and walk in a life marked by rectitude, justice, and equity. May God accomplish his will in all our lives. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.